Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Recorded live from the lobby of the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C., Black and Lit, powered by Full Service Radio. We're your hosts, Jasmine and Priscilla, and we're broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C. Black and Lit is a multimedia brand celebrating dope black people doing the things they love without boundaries. Each week, we're bringing you inspiring stories of tastemakers, artists, and entrepreneurs of color who are taking risks to create the life they want. Today in studio, we are so excited to have my dear friend, Obi Okolo. He's a creative director and the founder of Stag Creative. He's a super talented creative, photographer, musician, all-around dra- jack-of-all-trades. Welcome, Obi. What's up, Welcome. Y'all? Hey, hi. We're so hi. excited you so much. to have you. I'm excited to be here. I'm, am I a dope of black people now? Is that a thing? You yeah. are Can black I, and you are lit. I get the certificate afterwards, right? <laughs> yes. A printed You're like though. my creative hero. That's one. Yeah. <laughs> Legit. Leap. That was a leap. I appreciate that. That's Thank how I you. feel. Yeah. I actually agree too. Oh, okay. Obi's a really good cook. Also, I forgot to mention that. I mean, I'm alright. <laughs> I'm trying to be better at like receiving affirmation. I'm not very good at it. I'm uncomfortable right now. Help. Well, Aww, get used well don't to feel it. Com- uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> I first learned about your work actually through Jasmine. Jasmine used to. Uh, talk about working with you all the time and I was like who is this guy I need to meet him as I was coming back home to DC I was just trying to like figure out who is who and who's really moving um like the the creative scene along here in a really interesting way and connecting old and new DC and I think that you're really doing a lot of that through your work um I came in contact with your work even before meeting you on Instagram. And then finally we got to have you on our pilot episode and get to know you a little bit then. And, and I've gotten to know you a little bit more since then, but I wanted to know what are you doing as a creative director and, and what is stag media? Yeah. What do you even do? do Obi, what besides do create? I do? Yeah. I wake up Constantly. every morning and I ask myself that same question. <laughs> also, my parents ask me that question all the time. What do you do? Um, yeah. So creative director is a, it's a very strange thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's, uh, I'm sure everyone has a definition and you know, it's, it's whatever. I'm probably going to piss off a few people with my definition. Um, my background is in architecture. Um, my degree is in architecture. I worked in the industry for a while. I thought that's what I wanted to do. Um, and after doing that for a little bit, I realized that I loved the skill set that I got to use, didn't necessarily love applying it to the built environment. Um, and sort of, it's been a journey since then to try to identify that skill set. And the, the best way I can put it all together is, I connect unrelated dots. Um, It is taking a creative vision and making sure that it translates from point A to point Z in the built Mm -hmm. environment. It's from master plan to doorknob. How can we make sure that this thing, this concept that is whatever it is, is communicated from the plan to the smaller plan to the individual rooms and spaces, to the color palette, the texture palette, doors, portals, windows, light fixtures, doorknobs. It's that whole uh, lifespan of a thing, and I realized, oh, I can just apply that same knowledge and skill set that I was taught in school 
to a brand or to an event or to uh, someone else's restaurant concept, making mm -hmm. sure that the thing that they want it to be is really what it is um, through the whole thing. And I think that's, in essence, what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, yeah. Who are some of the brands and restaurants you work with? Um, right now, um, we're doing work with Little Sesame. Um, shout out to Little Sesame and that squad. Amazing um, local hummus shop. Yeah. I'm uh, working with Drink Company, which is sort of comprised of Reverie in Georgetown. Shout out to Johnny Sparrow, who just did a shift drink episode um, yesterday, actually. Dope. Um, Columbia Room, the DC pop-up bars, if y'all are familiar with those. Um, New Box, which is a boxing gym over by Union uh, Station. Um, mm -hmm. Yep, I pop in there sometimes. Yeah, here and there. Sees me coming out of there every once in a while. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's sort of a really cool hodgepodge of of stuff that I've gotten to work with and work on. I'm now sort of taking some of that work and taking time to do work for myself um, and sort of a little bit of art in the practice of design services as well. So. A few interesting things going on there, but yeah, that's the. That's what kind the of art are we talking? Yeah. Are you like graphic designing now? Um, it's uh, some of it's graphic, some of it's photography. Photography was a big part of my sort of skill set early on because, for the most part, I would approach clients who could either afford me or a photographer and couldn't do both. So mm -hmm. I ended up like saying, "Oh, I'll be the photographer," and then seven years later, I'm still shooting. That's how you first got into photography. Yeah, clients literally, it was just like to, to save money. Yeah, to save money because I'd have these brand conversations with clients, and they're like, "Well, how do we communicate?" that in our photo photography or content. I'm like, oh, let's hire the photographer. I'm like, mm, we don't have the money for that. Mm. So I picked up a Canon T6i and then just started shooting and never stopped. Um, so recently pivoting sort of away from uh, the photography for profit and for sort of serving clients and shifting into a place of doing it as creative expression for some ideas that I've been playing with. Some of them are one sort of project I'm working on right now is just ideas around identity and what we, how we identify ourselves um, how we choose to express that identity and how that identity changes over time. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's that's some of the stuff. There's so much of your work is sort of adjacent to the food scene here in D.C. How did you even go about approaching those clients and picking up those people to begin with? Um, I feel like a lot of my life is, is serendipity and call it a blessing, call it whatever. It's not... I never intended it, but I think when I look back, there's a through line. So I've, I've been working in restaurants since I was in high school, mm -hmm. legally since I was in high school, definitely illegally in middle school. I was a busboy at a restaurant in San Antonio, Texas. Um, nice. Where you're from, right? Where I'm from, okay. yeah. Uh, when I was little, uh, too little to be legally working, but I was enjoying it and it was fun. Mm. Um, and then it's been busboy, it's been server, it's been front of house manager, it's been bar manager. And it's taken me from like restaurants into hotels. So I've kind of, I've loved that space um, for as long as I can remember. And then my mom growing up, sort of our home was that re revolving door of hospitality. Always, mm -hmm. always. To the point that it used to frustrate me sometimes as a kid. Um, so I just found myself, like, I found myself back to that constantly for some strange reason. And then um, when I came to D.C., I started doing some small work here and there for... Um, some startups got plugged into what was then 1776, which was a startup incubator. And one of those incubators was a company called Suma, uh, which no longer exists, but it was uh, set and designed to be a meal kit company for low-income families and um, urban young professionals mm. who technically shop very similarly to one another. 
Um, and it was just meant to ad address food insecurity, both in communities that we typically associate with food insecurities and then communities that we don't associate with food insecurities, but are very food insecure. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was the, I think it was really the first because we, uh, my business partner at the time, we designed the brand from the ground up. We, the name, we like did the name ideation, designed the brand color graphic. Um, it was a meal kit. So there are many, many moving parts. Mm -hmm. Um, we did the recipe development it was the first time I, I really stepped into the kitchen in like a logistical scientific way. Um, so I think I can look back and credit that to being the first time that I was like, oh, I really like this. I really want to be in this world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's go back to your your home life and your upbringing. Um, so you spent your early years in Nigeria before your family moved to San Antonio when you were nine ish. Nine. The first okay. birthday I remember here was when I was nine. Okay, so you basically grew up in a traditional Nigerian-American home, right? Yeah. Yeah, so how did that upbringing shape your career trajectory? Like, were your parents always supportive of your creative pursuits? Um, I will say yes and no. Uh, my parents were... So my... my mm. <laughs> Sorry, Go this, ahead and say this question has... Answer has layers. Um, my mom was always supportive um but not always understanding she didn't always understand mm. uh, but she was always there for it for sure for sure um and it was me it started off as music as a child it was music very early on um loved music played music been playing the drums since i was very very little um and we moved here i joined a band um i was in band through elementary middle high school like i, I did that mm -hmm. um and my mom was obviously like to drive me to practice and pick me up from practice you know she obviously she was supportive that's mentioned the cost of it it's right. not cheap um but didn't always understand it my dad sort of I, I don't know same definitely less supportive in the amount of time that it was uh taking up in my life because nigerian culture most a lot of west african cultures and african cultures as a whole um very academic but like the sciences the stem world is where we live mm -hmm. and the irony of that is just like so much of music and so much of art and so much of creativity was gifted by the african continent but somehow when your kid wants to go paint you're like nah right yeah. um I mean, it, seem, it seems like an unstable career to it, most parents. It does. And quite frankly, it kind of is most of the time, mm -hmm. right? And I think in a culture that is mostly about output and about productivity, um, it's hard to see your child and want to sort of see your child going into that. Uh, right. So I, I understand in hindsight, but they, I would say like my mom raised me and nurtured me with the drive to excel in whatever it is I chose to do. Um, so it was music and then it became art. Um, and then I was, thought I was going to go to school for music, psych, and do that. And then it became architecture. Still, all these are creative endeavors that they didn't really understand. Um, but they definitely, they put me in, in, in the space to do and created the condition that I could do them. So, mm -hmm. so they allowed you to sort of be curious and sort of navigate these interests for yourself growing up. Yeah. In, in yeah. And definitely like, and I'll say that just to my mom's credit, like celebrated the mm -hmm. work, um, always showed up for concerts, always showed up for rehearsals, like didn't really understand like what the hell a band mom was supposed to be doing, but like mm -hmm. did the band mom thing and the band booster right. thing and, um, paid for the art supplies. And so it was, yeah, for sure promoted the the curiosity and exploration in that way mm. 
What was your your environment like growing up? Like, what was your school life like growing up in San Antonio? San Antonio is a fun spot. San Antonio's a it's a um, yeah, man. It's it's a really interesting city because it's it's majority minority, but the minority group is Hispanics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess at this point, it's just a, it's a Latinx mix, um, and it's fun in that way because you know I, I was definitely one of the few um, black kids at my school. I went to Clark High School, which is on the north side. It's one of at least throughout most of its history, it's been one of the more affluent public schools in the Northside School District. Um, our rivalry game was with a school called Churchill, um, and it was called the Gucci Bowl because we were the two richest high schools in San Antonio. Oh, wow. Um, so like, that's where I was at. I mean, our, our, like, our student parking lot put our teacher parking lot to shame because like, these kids just had you know, money. And did you grow up in an affluent no, family? No, definitely. Did you feel like a disconnect from the other kids in school? Definitely a disconnect there. Socioeconomically? Uh, yeah, I think socioeconomically, technically, my, my family, lower middle class. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, lower middle class, but like, and my mom was very open about like finances. Like, mm-hmm. we, she, was, she was working multiple jobs at, at points. And mm-hmm. uh, it was, yeah, so it was lower middle class, but like working really hard to be there. Right. Sort yeah. of thing. Um, yeah, that, that was that was that was Texas for for most of the time, and like forget a black community. There was also not a Nigerian community, so like the two the two halves of my whole or the two holes of my whole were not represented in the community that I was in mm-hmm. uh, for most of my time growing up. Being Nigerian American, did you feel a connection with? the black American kids or was it kind of just because you know my skin is brown we're minorities we're connected in that way I wish that were the case no. I think in you know 1999 it was a different time being Nigerian American I definitely felt more of a hostility from the black community really um, that was in existence in San Antonio yeah I did not feel um accepted or necessarily safe in that space just because the thing that I was and the things that I was interested in were not deemed black enough and it was like there's that like forever adage of not being black enough like too black for the white kids too white for the black kids sort of thing right um and that's kind of exactly what it was and what were your some of your interests that were quote unquote man i mean it evolved (laughs) it definitely evolved through time but like the outdoors (laughs) (laughs) outdoors like hiking like hiking uh climbing biking uh camping um that was a lot of it. My music taste, just because I was into music at such a young age, I ended mm-hmm. up sort of being exposed to a wide breadth of music and, you know, loved. I remember, like, got my first car and I would, like, really just drive down the street listening to 88.3 in San Antonio, which is a classical music channel. Um, mm-hmm. Because why not? Um, so really into, like, music, but also really into weird music. I went through my, like, emo kid scene phase. Uh-huh. Um Avenged Sevenfold, Blink-182, Sum 41. I went through a ska phase for anyone out there who yep. is with me on that one. I can identify with that <laughs> a bit. I mean, I, I feel like I went through a similar phase, and it's something that I like to talk about a lot. Like, how do you develop your interests as a child? Like, talking about ska music. Like, I love No Doubt growing up. And I feel like I had... I can't even relate to these oh groups. Oh, my God. Return of Saturn. Like, what? I remember... What are these groups? Yes. No doubt. Gwen yes. Stefani. Gwen Stefani. Oh. Come on, girl. Got you. Got you. Got you. <laughs> no, but it's like... I also felt like my interests weren't exactly what you would consider black. 
but I never realized that was an issue until I was much older. Yeah. It's, it was really, it was super frustrating. And yeah. I think I, I mean, for me, it started very, very early on. It was, it didn't even start with my interest. It started with my speech. Mm. Like the way that Same. I talk Same. was the first, Same. right? And it was, it was first, it was like, oh, you have an accent. And then after I sort of, I lost my accent, which I hap- I'm sure that happened pretty quickly. I actually don't remember the, the transference there because I code switch when I'm with my family. So obviously I don't, didn't actually lose my accent. I just yeah. don't use it in an mm-hmm. American company. Um, it was, it started there. And then after the accent fell off, it was just the, the way that I talked. I don't, I, I, I don't know. And it's so frustrating because I don't have words to describe what, what I, I believe it is without using words that ultimately feel derogatory. Yeah. yeah. Because like, I don't think I speak any way other than plainly. I know. We I feel the same exact way. <laughs> regular, regular King's English. I like, actually, I yeah. wrote my college admissions essay on this exact topic. Really? Because I've dealt with this since probably elementary school and like education was really big in my family and me and my grandma Norma were very tight and she was an educator and speech was everything. Right. Like she would correct your, you know, pronunciation. Like she would correct everything. Right. And I kind of just adopted that. And I've always thought how I speak is just how I speak. It's yeah. English. But to other kids growing up in Prince George's County, like I, I was seen as trying to be uppity right. or quote unquote white. white. Yeah. The same. Why does it have to be that way? <laughs> yeah, the same for me. I mean, I was homeschooled in D.C., grew up in Northeast, adjacent to so many other neighborhoods and whatnot. But my mom did a great job of putting me in a variety of different programs around the city. And in one of those programs, I remember being confronted for the first time about, um, oh, you talk white. And that association to my speech had to do with like, oh, you must have grew up in this neighborhood Mm -hmm. or you must have grew up even in a two-parent household. And all of those things all of a sudden sort of discredited my authenticity to being black, which Mm -hmm. hurt because I never thought about it that way. I grew up in the gray space. Like my, my parents like... I, like I was homeschooled around all different sorts of people. It wasn't black or white. It was everybody. Right. But then when I was in this very black setting for like the first time in this sort of environment, it was like, oh, you don't listen to that sort of music. You're not black enough. Yep. You're not this enough. Mm-hmm. And I found myself on this quest all of a sudden to be enough to, in order to find my blackness. It <laughs> right. was just like the theme of like the decade of my life. It was just like Priscilla's quest to find blackness. Like she'll cut off her hair in this episode. <laughs> it was just like everything. Like she'll beg her parents to go to the go-go to find her blackness. I love it. Did you feel like you went through a similar thing? Like I think you... I'm still going through that thing. Mm. I don't think That's I, I look like for you. Yeah. Like I did. It's definitely not a thing that ends. It, it, it went through. So I grew up um, sort of existing in two different communities. One was my school, one was my church. Okay. Um, and our church was predominantly black. So the majority of the black young community that I had were, were at church. And I can count on like, there were like seven of us. It was me, Tuan, Demarcus, Jada, Dre, Raphael, Howard. Even the names I'm saying right now, you're like, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and you know, those, that, those were my black friends. And even, like in that group, even though they accepted me, like a lot of us are still friends to this day. DeMarcus is one of my best friends, um, in the whole world. But growing up, I was, I was just different all the time. Like I was academic to their athletic. I was in, in every way, in every way it's, it felt super different. So for me at that stage, it like, it ended up being this like aggressive code switch thing where like for a while I was like, I'm really good at basketball. Y'all, I was garbage at basketball. <laughs> like I'm t- t- trash, just utter trash, but right. I needed to blend in and fit into this group. So like I needed to be good. So me and Marcus would play. He's so much, I mean, he played collegiately. He's a coach now, like infinitely better than me, but I had to roll with Marcus. And then when I was with my white friends, I'd be in a completely different thing. And it then it be and then it grows beyond that into college and like trying to find my if y'all want to see the real evolution of like me trying to find my blackness just go to my facebook just look at the pictures on scroll my scroll all the way back so scroll sick. all the way back because i've never <laughs> deleted a single one and you can see like it literally i was literally a uh freaking parody of each race at some point in my life <laughs> interesting. interesting like full-on like flat bill snapback with double collar remember the double co- the double shirt yes. phenomenon yeah. I, yeah, the double I did that. polo. Was yeah. it like 2003? Yeah, yes. straight Cameron looking Absolutely. with colored oh contacts. God. That was a thing at a, at a hot you had moment too. Contacts. I had hazel colored contacts. No. Oh my god. Um, oh, it's bad. And then you get to like college, and it was like Abercrombie OB came out all of a sudden because mm-hmm. it was like, okay, well, this is a, this is a new group, and we're gonna do this thing now and smell like whatever the hell that store smells like. Um, and it's taken so many different forms. Most recently, is just like the decision to grow my hair out. Like this is, I got for those who don't know me or see me, which is no one. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just picture Killmonger. It's been a day. It's, it's been a day. Best. It's funny that you say Killmonger because I legitimately was watching Black Panther and I was like, I'm going to do that. So you basically just stole Killmonger's look. I shamelessly stole <laughs> Killmonger's look, which is not a bad look to steal. It works. Like, yeah. you know, he Michael has the B. gold Jordan. circular red yeah, glasses. I yeah. do. I do. I mean, I had the glasses before my hair grew out. Oh. But yeah, I realized at some point that like I've never had my hair this long. And, and with that, people react to me differently than they did before. It's just like, I, I don't know. I don't, I, and it's not a thing that I can necessarily put my finger on. I just know that I can distinctly remember being or feeling more quote-unquote approachable Mm -hmm. with a clean fade and now i've got semi-wild dreads on my head and it's like different Mm -hmm. it's different Mm -hmm. and it's funny because like i think black folk approach me differently as well as in more more inviting inviting, with more camaraderie Mm -hmm. and so did you feel like growing up that like black people did not approach you in an inviting way yeah Really? Because of how you spoke. I don't. It's because of a lot of things. Because of how I spoke. Because of the the the, the fact that I moved seamlessly between two world, worlds. Mm. Um, you know, I was also architecture is not a very diverse profession. So yeah. even in school, there's you know, I was one of four in our program. Um, you know, I, I sort of fell unfortunately very comfortably into the token spot for the majority of my you know adolescent years. Um, and it, it was there's so many there's only so many times you can hear someone say that you talk white yeah. um, or and the, the, the thing is both parties said that the white kid said that the black kid said that mm. but mm. out of the black kid's mouth it felt like rejection yeah interesting interesting yeah for me hair was also that sort of validation or entry point into community um, in college I found myself trying to find where I fit in once again it was, oh, should I 
go Greek? Should I? Oh yeah, that was a whole. <laughs> that was like a whole, yeah. ins- whole entire struggle. Yeah. I won't name the organization that I was trying to be a part of, but um, ha- going natural was like that way of finally sort of connecting with this community that was learning this language, if you will, in the aisles of Target all at once. Like, oh my gosh, girl, have you tried the Shea Moisture such and such? It was this identifiable point that we could all connect on that had nothing to do with where I grew up, how I spoke, mm-hmm. all of that. It's real. But this like this in-between thing has it's it's paralyzing and it's fr- it's super frustrating. Yeah. Because I don't know. I And we shouldn't have to choose. Like we should be able to celebrate the gray space in our life and shouldn't have to choose black, white, the what side of that identity and yeah and like coming coming into it from from an immigrant mindset and being nigerian it's an entirely different experience altogether because Mm -hmm. like i i literally had a moment when i realized i was black i didn't know that i was black when we first moved here really interesting not consciously because like when you grow up on the continent you're not black i'm obi right i'm not black in nigeria what do you think the disconnect is between like the black experience and the immigrant experience. Like why is it that there is a separation or disconnect between black Americans and African Americans? African Americans. Yeah. Um, I also just heard myself say, I'm not black. I'm OB. And I just heard I'm not black. I'm OJ. And I hated it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Apologies to everyone um, who was triggered by that. Um, That was a little triggering. That was a bit much. No, it's uh, it's, it's a different mentality. So, you know, growing up in Nigeria, I distinctly remember our parents, Nigerian parents, just being like, you're not like these American kids. Wow. Um, you're not what like these American kids. What do you think they meant by like, that? I mean, it's usually, like, oriented to grades, because it's all about grades, um, or, like, some behavior pattern. Because, I mean, there, there is a... There's a general stereotype about the way that Americans raise their children versus the way that immigrants raise their children. Like, insert immigrant group here. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So it was a lot of that. And when you hear that, you, there's this conscious reinforcing of your otherness and differentness um, in everything. And Ni- Nigerians and Africans in general, if you look at like social dynamics and social understandings, a lot of immigrant groups, a lot of um, mar- like marginal... Immigrant groups that move into countries that are marginalized populations struggle with this because we grow up with what's known as like an I, me mentality. What affects me affects me, right? What is mine affects me. And the black American experience is very much an I, we understanding. So if Mm -hmm. something happens to one of us, it happens to all of us. Right. Absolutely. And it took me literally until I was 26 to feel the I, we. I never felt the I, we. What? prompted that that's a very good question that i don't actually know that i can answer i think it was just a moment of of realizing like okay if it came down to it at the end of the day i am wearing the same skin clothes that you are wearing right um and if these systematic things that we are dealing with i operate in a certain level of privilege because of where i come from because of my education um because of what i do because of the spaces i occupy i get that but if it came down to me and a cop on the wrong day it's not going to end any differently. It yeah. just isn't, right? right? So that was part of the realization for me to start to feel that. But I also know that I don't feel it fully. Like, I know that I don't, feel it full, I don't fully feel the I, we sort of struggle. 
because they're still a part of me my entire upbringing that's just like, no, you are responsible for your actions. You are responsible for the things that happened to you. It's not someone else that you can blame. It's like by, by virtue of like Nigerian politics and Nigerian government, like you can't rely on the government for anything, so you can't really blame the government for anything also. And so this weird two-handed... It's like a very like mm. Republican conservative way of And I think yeah, that's thinking. why that's also why a lot of immigrant families tend to be very conservative is because the places they're coming from don't have a structure that can be relied on for life. So mm. you have to rely on you for life. You talk about the hustle, you talk about the grind, that thing that like immigrants come with is just like go, 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 go. That's what it's rooted in. Is, is there's no there's no thing. But the problem is we come here and step into a cultural and political climate that is vastly different and then have to learn how to navigate and operate within that. So do you think the I-we experience that black Americans possess has done us a disservice as a people? I'm going to really think about that before I open my mouth and speak. <laughs> N- no and yes. Okay. I, 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 I'm a, I appreciate the fact that I can navigate and, and, and stand in the middle of it. Because I can see ways in which it has benefited the community in the way that it, it benefits any community, right? For instance, prime example, I, I want white people to feel more I-we. Mm. In a sense that, like, I want, I want white people to be able to, to, to acknowledge the humanity of one another and another person's humanness. Right. And yeah. feel the thing that they are feeling. Yeah. Um, so I think IWE is very important in the black community. That's what, that's what builds the bonds of community. That's what builds the bonds. That's, what, that's why the head nod is a thing, right? Mm-hmm. That's why, like, the head a, nod. Anywhere the, you are. The handshake. The handshake. Yeah, that's, the dab, that's, like, that's what that's that. rooted in. Yeah. The flip side of that same coin is it's also a dangerous, slippery slope where we start to bear the burdens and carry the rage and anger for things that are not our own to bear. And there are seasons in life where people are not necessarily so. One of the things that one of the one of the things that right now I think is being imposed on all black people to feel is angry. Like if we talk about things that are perceived ideas of blackness being reinforced by black culture and imposed on black folk, it's anger and rage. Yeah. Do you think that's being imposed or do you think people are seeing what's going on to people that look exactly like them and that elicits a response of anger? I think a lot of people are seeing the things that are going on and it's eliciting a response of anger and rage. I think there are a lot of people, if they wanted to be completely honest with themselves, are not as angry as they're being made to feel like they are. And social media has definitely played into this, right? Over the last few years, like... All of these cases of police brutality, all of these things have been going on 100%. for a very long time. Right. We're in an age where it's very like salacious. It's it gets clicks. It gets all of that. They know that they can get they can elicit black rage. They know that I, they can get that sort of response. They know that they can get us tweeting, yeah. uh, writing an article that goes viral. And, and like I want to draw the, the very important distinction between like being angry and being moved. Because mm, I right. was going to say, isn't it that anger and rage that allows people to make changes? Some people are not Sometimes, moved. Not everyone is moved by anger and rage. Some no, people are moved by joy. Some lot. people are moved by excitement. But I also think that um, anger can then turn into something else that produces something that is joyful, ultimately, and, and brings people together in a good way. But a lot of times... 
anger can be just like couched in a way that isn't productive where it's just like us sitting in a room like going back and forth talking about white people but never making an effort to sort of move do the conversation along do a thing that is productive i'm with you on that uh, and it's it's yeah so it's it's very it's definitely like as i'm saying it i'm being very careful about what i say because i don't i don't want to say that there's not a reason to be angry there 100% is a reason to be angry. But just be honest about the level of anger that you're feeling because that also opens up the dialogue. Like, Mm -hmm. if everyone's coming in saying, like, yo, we're all mad, we're all mad, and we're talking within ourselves, right, and everyone just feels mad, okay, that's fine. If there's a voice in the room that's like, okay, I'm I'm upset, but I'm, like, I'm feeling something different. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily anger. It it might be, like, uh, you know... In my, I mean, another a prime example was the, the recent conviction of um, the officer in Help Me, who just in Dallas, in Dallas, that right, shot right, the unarmed man in right. his own apartment, in his own mm-hmm. apartment, and like I was talking, I was in a group of people, and I'm like, yeah, like super angry, super angry, and I was sort of in a position where I was like, I'm encouraged that she was convicted, you know, like it's that it's that like otherness. You're not allowed, even in still in the spaces, like you're not allowed to comfortably be other. Like whatever the the general flow of traffic is is yeah, the flow of traffic that you have to go sheet. in. You can't you can't push up against that at all. And that can be very frustrating. Yeah. Let's continue to unpack this after we take a quick break. We'll come back and talk more about perceived ideas of blackness and cultural trauma in the black experience and in the immigrant experience. We'll be right back. If you don't know what ghetto style means by now, I guess we're just gonna have to break it down for you. Rock the beat. Welcome back to Black and Lit, powered by Full Service Radio. We're broadcast, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C. And we have Obi Okolo with us today. He is a creative director and the founder of Stag Creative. And today we're talking about not only his illustrious creative career, but the perceived ideas of blackness that are enforced by black culture. Yeah. but created by white culture. <laughs> yeah, it's it's super frustrating. So earlier you were talking a little bit about, we touched on black rage a little bit. 
and current news and how all of that sort of um, has shaped your identity and, and being sort of in the middle still. How have these things and in, in growing more in your career and everything, how have they sort of shaped your perception of blackness now? Like, what is your idea of it in relationship to whiteness? And, and how are you sort of navigating that middle space, if you will? The middle space has gotten easier to sit in, um, I think just in, in, in part because of my age and the necessity to just sit in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also the, my, quote unquote, whatever brand of blackness is acceptable now or more acceptable than it has been ever in my life. Um, <laughs> another podcast that I listen to is, um, oh God, I wish it, I'd, what's it called? Anyways, it's um, Yvonne Orji and Lovey Ajaye's podcast. Oh, I love uh, Lovey. It's, it's called Jesus and Jalof. Something, yes. yes. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus and Jalof, yeah. and they have this like hilarious thing. They start off with saying that like your blackness is enough at Jesus and Jalof, and it's 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 two, these are two Nigeria or one Ghanaian, one Nigerian woman speaking mm-hmm. about their black experience in America, and they probably feel the same thing that I did. That like their their blackness and the type of blackness that they exhibit was not enough most of their lives, and I feel like now we're in a place where like oh it's okay I can be black in any expression of blackness that I that I want right um, so it's gotten easier in that sense but then that sort of unlocks a whole other weird collection of questions and weirdness I mean but like how do we get society to stop referring to things as being white like I mean what how do these things fall into the category of whiteness yeah I don't know like things like certain genres of music, music or yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, outdoor activities, camping. For instance. <laughs> why is outside white? That's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> why? Why does that fall into the tenet of white? Like stepping on the grass is, is all of a sudden this white. Thing. Yeah, like, I don't know, man. It's it's super frustrating because I think there's such a richness. Like there's a there's a richness of life um, that we miss in that space. I think a lot of it's rooted in fear. So like, if you if you look at the the black experience historically, it has been a survival, an experience of survival, right? Obviously, things on the continent were very different than they were when you know the, the the passage was over and they landed on the shores of the new world and everything at that point was about surviving you know so exploration was dangerous doing things outside of bounds was dangerous anything outside of bounds was dangerous and not just dangerous in that oh you might get hurt but it was life threatening it right. was a matter of life and death so we've had this culture that's been raised up with this mentality and this fear of curiosity in a way uh, because curiosity was a life-threatening experience for the majority of the black experience in America mm-hmm. I think we're just now sort of starting to peak on the other side of that so anything outside of the bounds of what was deemed black and okay and safe then became white and unsafe and it was it was more of a question of why are you putting yourself in that unsafe place by experiencing this thing and combine that with a lack of understanding of what the thing was that I think maybe it was an indictment on my actual self. But like, why, like, why, why do you talk white? Like, that's not of you, but mm-hmm. it's like, but it is, it is of me. And, and like proper grammar does not need to be white in the same way that like speaking. And this is why it's, it's a little, it's a little slippery. And I think why we struggle with it, because if, if we don't want things to be considered white anymore, we kind of have to also be willing to give up some of the things that are considered quote unquote black. Why what do you, do you think, mean by that? Well, like, yeah, why, why do, do I have, have to, to pick and choose like what is the give, giving up? Because we can't. It's myself. not even really giving up. It's just that we can't be a people that's saying like, oh, we want 
like we want to be able to experience the fullness of life. We want to go outside. We want to hike. We want to rock climb. We want to you know, scuba dive. Like we, we don't want those things to be white anymore. Well, we have a whole race of people who are white and light skinned who want to experience and contribute to hip hop. And who want to, I mean, we're seeing a whole movement right now of just like soul foods driven by white chefs. Like, we, yeah. like, it's not to say that, that those things aren't rooted and the contribution is not coming from a, a black historical core. And I think you always have to look back and harken back to where the thing came from and give credit where credit's due. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people are still dealing with a lot of cultural trauma that's been passed down from their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents. I mean, black people weren't allowed to do a lot of things that are just deemed normal, like go to a swimming pool or go on a hike at a national park. Right. So it's like trying to, trying to be in this space now and like say that white people can now do the things that we've taken as our own because we needed something because we couldn't do all of these things that were quote unquote normal. Right. That feels like giving up something that's inherently ours. Ours. It does. And it's scary. It's a scary notion to think, but it, 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 it's one of those like scary hard works that if, if we are looking for like reconciliation, then that's sort of the work of reconciliation. It's it's both parties meeting in the middle, right? It's this it's this movement towards one another, um, and as you move towards something, you're leaving something behind. Yeah. Um, so it's it's it is a scary notion. It's a scary, scary, it's scary, scary. Thing. It's uncomfortable at the same time of the idea of fully reconc- reconciling with yeah. somebody else who has a history of. Right. Do you think the majority of the black community wants reconciliation? Absolutely not. Like, I would say that black people, the majority of black people would rather live inside of a very happy silo and just like love on one another, have sort of like a Marcus Garvey sort of approach to their existence. But in the same breath, they want other people to sort of understand them and, 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 and treat us well. I tend to, I tend to agree towards Priscilla. Um, but also I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I can't speak for the majority of the black community. I think in our heart of hearts, we have to just be able to ask ourselves, do I want reconciliation or do I want retribution? Mm. That's the real question. Like, do I want That's a very deep question? Do I want to reconcile to you? Or do I want you to feel the pain that I felt? I think a lot of people might feel the latter. I think a lot of people feel the latter. And like, that's a whole other podcast altogether. Yeah. We're running oh, out of time. <laughs> We're running out of time. I think we need to do a part two to this. Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole other podcast. And I'm, I'm, in a lot, I'm in a lot of conversations right now about that. I'm in, I'm in a space about that. Uh, full disclosure, my partner, my girlfriend is white. Um, and, you know, my best friend is in an interracial relationship as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, my community is very mixed. I serve uh, in a youth ministry that is very mixed. And, like, we're having a lot of conversations about, like, what is white? What is black? Yeah. Do we want to be on the same page? Do I want you to feel my rage and feel my pain? It's That's real. I mean, that's a really hard it's place real. to be. Full disclosure, my partner is white. <laughs> And it's a really... I don't got a partner. (laughs) (laughs) And, I mean, it's conversations that we have all the time. And I think it's a beautiful thing to be able to have that dialogue in a real way. But that'll definitely be for our next episode. I think we should get into interracial dating. Am I coming back? 
We'd love to have you back, Obi. <laughs> we love talking to you. I mean, I we can sit here for three hours. <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. Well, we just want to say a huge thank you to Obi Okolo for joining us today. We will definitely have you back on. I feel like we have so much more to unpack about all these topics that we talked about. I mean, black rage, interracial dating, what it means to be quote unquote black, both in the black community and in the white community and you know the cultural trauma of the black experience versus the immigrant experience all things i think you have such a unique perspective on we really appreciate you sharing it with us today thank you all for having me here absolutely i know this like takes it on another sort